those letters hurt every letter writing or receiving those suck like it's you know it's prison promises you know hi i'm hannah and i'm monica and you're listening to cage nation Welcome back, Cage Nation listeners. Um, this is Hannah. And this is Monica. And today we are here with our second guest. We're really excited to invite Tony to our show today. Welcome, Tony. Hello. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Tony is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time. And when I was thinking about a lot of the topics and themes for this show, he was someone that came to mind because he's had a lot of experience. And so today's show, we're going to be talking about the criminal justice system, prison reentry related to family relationships. And so that's the theme of today's show. So our question that we're asking all guests as they come on is, when does a person's sentence end? So Tony, what do you think about that question? So I've, <clears throat> I've never been in prison, but I think, I, I, I know a lot of people who have been in prison, I have family members that have been in prison in and out. And some of them, it's, they could be out five, six years, but they still have the same mentality. Mm-hmm. They still have the same um, routine. Mm-hmm. You get up early, mm-hmm. you wash up, you eat your breakfast, and then you got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's at, like, 5.30, 6 in the morning, and it's, okay, I'm ready to start my day. Here's what we're doing. But a lot of times they don't have anything to do after that, but they still keep the same time, time frame, time, you know, on what they do, but... And then they kind of have everyone else around them, like, hey, if I'm up, you got to be up, mm-hmm. so you got to be ready. And I'm like, hey, I just came for the night, yeah. you know, and it's like that. But Yeah, so having this routine that mimics prison, even though you're on the outside, maybe provides some kind of safety for somebody or provides what? Pro- probably safety in a way, but also I think they just get so used. I mean, you know, most of the time you're not in prison for like a couple months. You're in there for several years. And so within that several several years, you know, you have that, you have, well, in there, I don't want to say you're like safe, but you have a semi-structured, you know. But out here, if you don't have that, then to some who really want to stay on this, like I'm doing good, I'm living a different life, they have to keep that. Mm-hmm. Or slash... They just do it because that's how they've been most of their life. I know people who have been in and out of prison since they were 18 in their 60s, yeah. and that's all they know. And it's in and out, in and out. It's the same routine year after year with nothing else that you're advancing. And, I mean, with that, too, you can get out, but you still have tons of stuff to do. Yeah. You still have, you know, most people that want to be clean, want to be sober will fight to do that when, you know, obviously – people can choose to use inside you know when they get out it's a whole different it's not just you know it's right there so when you think about your first experience with the criminal justice system what comes to mind so I think two different things do one is I and other family members were uh, separated from our biological parents my one of my parents went to prison and the other one just kind of left. 
And uh, they left all of us there. And so I'm six, eight months old, and the oldest was 13, and there's five of us. Cops come in. They take us all, separate us. I'm over here. They're over there. And all I knew growing up was that relatives were in prison. Mm. And so I think growing up knowing that, well, I didn't know, no, but I knew Mm -hmm. that they were in jail because of my adopted parents. But later on when I met them, I saw a a whole different lifestyle, Mm. which I ended up at 16 well, 15, getting involved with a lot of different things that I wouldn't have known <laughs> staying at home. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't have known where I grew up. Um, but when I saw that lifestyle, I chased it. You know, it wasn't what I knew. It was completely different. It was what you saw in the movies, what we heard in, like, rap songs, mm-hmm. gangster movies, stuff like that. And I was like, oh, this is cool. But everything else that surrounds it, prison, jail, you know, people dying all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and so when I was 16, that was the first time I got arrested. And that was the first time I got put on probation was I was 16. When you think about the time between you being young and um, a lot happening within your family and you all being separated, you and other family members being separated, and then you you mentioned sort of chasing that lifestyle like once you were exposed to it, or maybe you had heard things about it, but you wanted it, and you were then arrested. What was it like for you? Were you thinking, did you feel let down? Did you feel like you kind of were accomplished? Did you feel closer to your family? Did you feel farther away? Like, what, what did you start to think and feel? Um... Honestly, I felt like, like you know what, I'm down, man. Like mm-hmm. It's just jail. Like It's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just juvie. I, I never really went to juvie, okay? I was supposed to go like two or three times, so but they were... The yes, never I've never been to juvie. <laughs> I've never been to juvie. I came close, um, but almost. almost. But they, they were full. Mm-hmm. And so after the third time that happening, they're like, well, next we're going to send you to McLaren. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to get you know, my shit straight. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel let down by it because I didn't, you know, people coming back to high school, people like, oh, you got arrested. I'm like, yeah, like whatever, <laughs> like thug life, you know, just stupid. Yeah. You know, but then I was on probation until I was 18. And between 16 and 18, I would get in trouble. I did um, outpatient. I... You know, there's different things I had to do, you know, peer court, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, going through that and just being able to, like, BS my way, like, whatever, um, I never took it serious. I never took it serious. Um, the party stuff, yeah, because it wasn't just – not many 15-year-olds in the town I was at was, like, smoking weed. I mean, like, coke or, like, meth, mm-hmm. crank. You know, and then I did, and I was like, oh, it's not that bad. This is a cool thing. On the weekends, I'm kicking with all these cholos, and then come Monday, I'm back in, in at the high school. Yeah, and that's how it's always been. Like, I'm and, it, and it's weird because I went through phases where I'd just be bald-headed cholo, mm-hmm. and then I go through a phase where I'm like, oh, I'm going to be all GQ. 
grow out my hair a little bit. Then it's like, oh, I'm back in the same thing with this whole cholo thing. And it, I don't know if it, I, not really an acceptance thing, but it was more of a, when I was there, like even kicking it and everything, you know, and this, this is where they lie to you and say like, oh, like the homies and stuff like that. Like, oh, we're your family. We're this and that. We got your back. You know, it's not like that. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like there's a different version of a reality there. It's, it's not, it's not, uh, you can't take it at face value. But it definitely now being older, looking back on that is like, man, come on. Like I waste like all my twenties, like throughout all my twenties, I was in and out of jail a week in here, a week here, a month here, a month there. Like, you know, it was nothing. But then I turned 30 and I'm like, okay, I'm 30. Like I can't do this, you know? And so I think the last time I went to jail, I was probably 27, 28. That was it. When you think about that time in your life, what does identity mean to you? So I have like five names I go by. So I can go by Tony and that's just like jeans and a t-shirt and some shoes. Like, just chill. Tony Uncut. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anthony was a little more, like, dressed up. Like, all right. Junior is, like, the little homie. Um, I had my rap name. The identity part of it, each one, and I might sound like I'm a little, like, because I have all these different things, but it's, like, they're all me, but it's also, like, I have family that won't call me Tony. But I have friends that won't call me junior, and I'm fine with that. You know, it's how they know me. Like, Monica, like, I've, you know, it'd be weird for her to say, hey, junior. I'd be like, oh, I don't like that. It's like, no, it's Tony. It's Tone, you know. And identity is, it's tough because I think when it comes to, like, me thinking about identity, it's like, so I was born, my name was Felix. When I was adopted, they changed it to Anthony. And so, I mean, that's two completely different names, but also two completely different worlds. And like I said, I was raised this way, but then I saw this and I said, hey, there's no rules in this life. So I'm like, Junior, all right, that's cool. And so I just went by that and I'd come home and it'd be Tony and it gets tough because it's, you know, I couldn't just show up dressed like a chole. They'd be like, come on, man, that's not you. (laughs) But it is, you know, but it's, yeah. But at the same time, it's not. So it's like a weird thing when it comes to identity. and yeah. So thinking back to how lots of systems intervened in your family early on, it's created this disconnect and it created these, um, I don't know, splits um, in how people identified um, names, the family people grew up in, um, you know, some siblings being really close growing up and some siblings not, um, knowing where other family members are or where your parents are, like it creates all of these divisions. And so to me, it makes sense when you think about all of that happening and then internally trying to like reconcile all this stuff. Like, where do I fit? How do these pieces, they're all kind of disjointed and how do they fit together? Um, So if you think about what, you know, for example, incarceration does, pulling someone out of the community, um, it creates a division, it creates a line, it creates some sort of disorganization in somebody's life. And and you and people find lots of behaviors to fill that in or different ways to cope with that. Not all of them are healthy, right. um, but 
if we think about it um, in a way of just trying to reconcile or cope or accept something, to me, it makes sense to like, I'm going to wear different hats at different times um, so I can fit in or I can be comfortable or I can belong or whatever. So that makes sense to me. How has intergenerational incarceration affected your family? Um, so that's kind of crazy because it started with, um, I mean, I'll, just, I'll be honest, like, I love you, mom, love you, dad, check it out. It started with my parents. My father went to jail when he was younger and kind of kept that lifestyle. And my mother, a, less than a year after I was born, maybe about a year, she went to prison. And so she, when she took off to L.A., she ended up in prison down there. And that's kind of partially why we all were still separated. Um, so it started with them and then... Uh, within my biological family, there's nine of us kids. I'm the seventh. And probably eight out of nine, nine out of nine of us have been in jail. You know, like, I didn't have a relationship with my father growing up because of this. And when I was 15, I got to meet him. But even when I was 15, he went to prison. And so then it was letters. So I'm getting these letters back home from him, and it's just... It was hard. It was weird. It was like, I've never had this. This isn't the lifestyle I come from, but I've seen it. And I mean, that was tough because it strained a lot between him and I. And uh, I mean, it has up until recently. Um, But I mean, it could all be stopped. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to continue. It's what I'm trying to tell some of the people in my family, like, you guys did this? Okay. You don't have to go through this again. You don't have to live this life. And I mean, there's family members that, you know, we, uh, like I'm helping out a family member because they had went to, to jail for a while and just what we're kind of helping with. And it's all because of jail. It's all because of that. But at the same time, you know, it's, they have to make a decision for themselves. They have to figure it out. I mean, you could tell somebody a hundred times and... What do you think the barrier is for some people? They see a life they want to live and chase it until they realize it it doesn't end up like that. and They chase that. They chase money. I mean, I chased money. I, you know, I think when you're young, I think you still want to live your own way. You don't want to be, you know, you don't have to want to answer anybody. That's a lot of it now. They don't want to answer anybody. They don't want to... There's a whole thing with respect and loyalty, but it's a fake loyalty. It's not even real loyalty. It's, you know, the streets have their own politics, you know? And I mean, when they, these young kids, you know, these young teens that, you know, it's nothing to them to spend most of their time in jail or in and out of jail. And it's like, what do you guys have now? It's like, come on, there's something better out there. And I mean, for me, it was church. That was where I felt safe the most. And for some, it's everyone has their own thing, you know. But, like, sometimes it won't change even if it's for, like, their children. It's still like, oh, we're still going to do what we want. But also, like, the drugs are a lot different than they were back in the day. And it's so much easier to get them today. And so you have all these kids that are just chasing a little bit of dope, chasing money, you know, and they end up just repeating everything that their parents did. And to some, it's like, it's cool. 
you know, to some, they think it's cool. Like, oh, yeah, that's my that's my son. He's a little homie, this and that. You know, I've seen, you know, a dad and their son all gangstered out together. And I'm like, dude, that's sad. That's not, come on, you know. Or, you know, a father and son selling dope together. It's like, come on, that's not exciting. That's not how you really want it to be, you know. And it's, I don't know, there's a lot to it. Why do you think people follow in their family's footsteps, especially families who know their parents have been removed, know the pain that it is to not get to know your family members or know them through letters or, you know, behind a glass. But why do they keep doing it? Like, what do you think that connection there is? Acceptance, trying to just be like, hey, like, I'm right here. Not an attention thing, really, more acceptance. I think acceptance is different than the attention aspect of it. A lot of the ways that you describe behavior around that lifestyle however, whatever label you want to put on it or identity you want to put on it is a lot of, um, how I hear you referencing it is a lot of like juvenile behaviors or like immature behaviors, like kind of like, when are you going to grow up? Um, is that like, what do, what do you think that's about? Like the idea of people who are forties, fifties, sixties. And when you compare it to like a teenager, like what what do you what do you think of that or what do you make of that? It's one thing when I don't know, it's so it's tough because when you're younger, like rules are like whatever. You know, teens to like mid twenties, you're kinda like, whatever, I'm an adult now, I'm eighteen, I can do what I want. Mm-hmm. But to some they take it to such an extent where it's like it's not just a party, it's not just a weekend night, it's like a daily like lifestyle that they go into? Um, I think loyalty is a really important concept. I remember working with people who were coming out of prison and they would say things like, um, well, I have to pick up my friend. I I couldn't come to my PO appointment because my my homie needed my truck. Um, And my response some of the time was, how many times did that person visit you when you were locked up? And most of the time, the answer was never. How many times did that person come to see you? How much did they put on your books? And usually it was never. Um, And so when you talked about this kind of false sense of loyalty, it's really interesting because it's so common in this kind of population, what's going on in this community. What do you think that is? I'll kind of use an example. So I got this friend, and this is probably about Four years ago, I'd gotten in an accident. I'd stopped hanging out with everybody, just kind of just alone for a little bit. And they got into some trouble at a bar several times and called me and said, hey, I need you. And I'm like, no. like, And they're like, come on, we're homies, we're family. And I'm like, I can't. But it's like, so you want me to go help you? So when you go back to jail, like, then what? You know? And so they kind of flip it to where I feel guilty for not going. And it's like, that's... That's not even real loyalty. What you're trying to get me to do, that has nothing to do with loyalty. You know, it's all fake. So, I mean, there are legit people with loyalty. I get that. But out here, you know, like a lot of times it's excuses, you know, for, oh, you're not going to do this because, oh, I thought you were down or this and that. It's like it has nothing to do with being down. It's, you know, you're talking about freedom. You're talking about like years on somebody's life just for one, one little thing. Like you're saying like, you know, how many times do they visit you or, oh, I couldn't make it because of this. Most of the time, those are excuses. And I'll say that because I use those like, oh, I had this and that or, oh, I had to go do this. It was, you know, and I'm like, no, I was just at home. Like, 
probably high and it couldn't make it, you know, and it's, yeah, it's all faulty out there, like. Well, and it's interesting how loyalty comes in only at certain moments. Yeah. It's not loyalty overall, right? Because loyalty would be, I'm not going to put you at risk by having you come to the bar and help me right. because I'm going to respect you. But really, it's like loyalty in pockets only when stuff's about to go really bad for me, that's when I need you. But if it's about you or if it's kind of these surface level everyday things for, and especially for people who are incarcerated, who need those visits, right? I mean, they need some money on their books. They need a phone call. Um, those are the moments where people aren't as loyal or that doesn't really seem like it comes up as much. Speaking of visits, what was it like for you to visit anyone who was in jail or um, in prison? What, what was that experience like? So I was probably 18 the first time I visited someone in prison. And I remember I took the bus, got off, and here's the prison. It's huge. And I'm walking up like, oh, man, like, what am I doing? And I walk in, and it's just tons of people in there. And I'm, I don't know, it was weird the first time. It was weird. I think it was at, it was, anyway, it was at some prison, but. Going in and seeing the family member after I get checked in and they check you and you're standing on this wall and, you know, I went in, it was just, you walk in, you see all these people dressed the same. Then you see your one person make eye contact, so that one person stands up and you're kind of like, oh man, like, who are all these people? And most of them look rough, like, mm -hmm. is it about to go down right now? Yeah. And like I said it was my first time going inside a prison, so I had no idea what to expect and it was just loud and just, you know, you have just, there was like just a little table and two chairs and we're just sitting there talking and that was it, you know, and a little hug and like, okay, I'll see you in a couple weeks maybe, but it wouldn't be that often. And it was, that was tough. I think like in the movies, when somebody goes to jail and they put yeah. their hand on the glass, yeah. that only happened to me once, actually twice, twice, <laughs> once with my sister and then once with a friend. Mm -hmm. But I made it more like a joke when it was with a friend because I was like, they're like, no. But it was, that was sad. Like, when I did that with a relative and they like they put their hand on the glass and I was like, this is what they do in the movies. Like, do I really do that? Like, and once I did, I remember just like bawling because I was like, this really sucks. And there was a time when, and it, and it hurt because I thought, that the person there shouldn't be there, that it was more like I should have been there. And so I had this regret because of this whole thing that went down and I, I'd go visit or I'd write and you know we'd have conversations and it would just be like, you're, you're missing out because I overstepped a boundary and I should have listened. But I know it wasn't me because we all make our own decisions, but I know how to part to play. And so, I mean, that was, that was tough. And then especially going to see them because of that guilt. That was hard. The other times, it was just mainly my father I'd go see. Um, but then we, like, Father's Day. Like, we just had Father's Day, and this was, like, the first time him and I had one. The other time we did, he was in prison. And... I remember I wrote, I like tagged up this little piece of paper, Happy Father's Day, this and that, handed it to him, and that was it. And so this year we had one, and I mean, this was the first time 
that I got to have a Father's Day with him. And it was, I mean, we're like, we started talking a few months back, but I mean, you know, a lot of it is because of lifestyle choices. And that's even on me, like how I choose to live mine. I, I'm over here, I'm kind of focused on what I'm focused on. And, you know, it's, I put so much time back in the day onto everything that was going on out in the streets out here that work and job stuff came second, third, fourth. What does it mean or what's been your experience to try to connect with your family or your friends who are either still on the lifestyle or maybe aren't on the same path as you? Like what does that moment of connection look like or mean? Um, so I got in an accident about five years ago and I had stopped everything drinking I wasn't really doing dope back then not like really um but I mean like from then until now it's all you know I had some of these same people that saw my life change and saw how I'm not doing this how I'm you know I'm here this is what I'm trying to do and you know I have a homie that was just like man like like you made it out He's like, you know, this is how you were before. Like, you were out here doing this and that. You didn't have a care in the world. But now you're like, you're working, you're focused. This is what you're doing. Like, dang, man. And I'm like, you can do it too. Like, you can do this too. But there's a huge drug epidemic. So you're saying it's not unique to your experience. Like, your path was yours, right? Like, you, a lot of things led up to you making the choice that you did, and so everyone has theirs, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there is an exit plan. There could be an exit plan for anybody, depending on, you know, what they chose or if things lined up for them. And, like, when I say, I'll say, like, hope, and I don't mean that in, like, a religious thing. I just mean in general, like, hope in general. There literally is for everybody. Like, you know... Until you cross that line, like, there's still hope out there for people to, you know what? I'm going to turn around and do this this way. I'm going to live this way. And, I mean, the only reason I did it is because of my accident. Like, that was the only reason anything changed. Yeah, so it had to be something big. Yeah. I wish it wasn't that big to, like, make me change. But, I mean, I had so many other little things between all those times that were, like, offering a change right there. You know, but I never took it. I'd be like, oh, it's cool for like a week. And then I'm like, you know what? I like doing this over here. I like everything out here. But, you know, once I stopped all that and kind of got focused on like something else, the stuff in the streets, none of that mattered. The, you know, I was tired of going to jail. And I know it was just jail, not like prison, but like you get tired of that. And I mean, if I would have continued doing the same thing the last five years, I'd definitely be in and out or worse I mean yeah how do you think prison culture has shaped or influenced your family dynamics I grew up watching like the Mexican gangster movies you know and so I mean that coming into like my family stuff a lot of that was similar like I'm Hispanic and native and so I mean when it comes to like that you kind of have two areas you can go you can go with like the essays or you can go with like the natives I'm not really sure. I just know that the ones who have came out end up being more, there's something different about them, you know, because none of them have really only spent like a short time. It's been like a longer time. In your family, when someone goes to jail or gets arrested, 
What's the response? Sometimes it's like, again? Mm. It's like, okay. And sometimes it's like, oh, they'll be out on this date. Okay, we're going to have a party for them when they get out and this and that. It's like, they're going to be on probation. doesn't matter. At least that's how it is with me. You know, that's how, you know. But, I mean, there has been where it's been like, okay, they went, dang, what for? Don't worry about it. You know, kind of like, we'll just say, oh, yeah, they're there for what? It's like, that doesn't matter. Just because it's such a big, you know, they could be here for this, 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 or that, but it's like they're still there. And some of it, I think there's some that if we had money at certain um, times we had to go to court and stuff, I think the outcome would have been different. And that kind of sucks because it's, you know, I just went through court with someone and their attorney, like I was there and they tried to call a bunch of times and they wouldn't do anything and it was... You know, finally, like I went probably five times to court and the attorney never did a thing. And I had some stuff to say about that because it's like, you know, what this person's going for isn't what this person should be going for. And they're having to pay all this extra money, do all this stuff when none of it was charged like that. But because of a recommendation from, you know, the attorney or the, um, yeah, the court appointed attorney is, oh, now now we're going to take this out of your pocket because you messed up in this area, even though it wasn't even connected. And so now this person's paying all this extra. And it's like, you know, if we were to have money and pay for an attorney, like a legit lawyer, like some of us probably wouldn't have been on or as like as long of like probation or a jail sentence or stuff like that. Um, and I, I really mean that. Like in one of my things, I... I got a felony when I was 20 for an assault and I had a court appointed attorney. I, I didn't, I drank a lot that night, like a fifth and a half by myself. I'm 20. I'd never drink like that before ever. So once everything's over, I'm in court. They're about to sentence me to prison for three years. And he holds up a paper. He goes, I was going to send you for three years. And it's just me. I'm like, okay. He goes, I'm gonna give you three years probation though. I'm like, all right. So as an adult, when I went over all that paperwork, everything says, like, I knew what I was doing when I hit this person. I knew what I was doing with that. I said, no. Like, the last thing I remember is running out of the house, and that is it. Now, if I would have had money, could that have changed the outcome because I could have had somebody fighting saying, hey, this guy had no idea. You know, I mean, there's more to it, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's I didn't have that, and so... But now that I say that, I'm not saying the next however long I was on probation went well because I made it longer because of my decisions. So there's a there's a gray line with that. I mean, there's people that shouldn't be locked up right now, and it's because of money. And, like, court-appointed attorneys, I get some of them care, but some of them don't. And some of them, it's yeah. they keep low-income people of color in the system. And I fully believe that. I think that uh, when you think about money in a big system like the criminal justice system, I think it says a lot. It speaks a lot. And I think it's obvious when you even look at um, the the color of people that we are locking up mm-hmm. um, in disproportionate numbers um, by, by a long shot. So 
um, yeah, I really appreciate that example because I think it's true, it's valid, and there's like one instance of how that works when you think about the amount of paperwork and also legal language. That's a whole, we could do a whole episode just on legal language, but how things are worded, what someone's arrested for, what they are charged with, and then what they actually end up being convicted of could be very different things. Mm -hmm. So when you run like a criminal history check, or I know working with clients or patients in the past, they're like, yeah, like I really didn't do those things, but that's what the judge decided to like, I plead to, you know, I pled down these three things. And so really it's just like this one charge, but that had nothing to do with actually why it was arrested or that was actually the other guy. But like, because we did decided to do some resolution in court, that's, that's what it ended up with. But the wording has less to do with the reality of the situation. And when you think about it in that way, for you, Tony, what does justice mean? That's tough. Um, I mean, like I had a friend that was killed and the people at the time, like it was because of a bar fight, but the guy, I don't know where he is at now, but it was like an in and out of jail thing. And this guy, like he's dead because these people, and it was like, okay, this guy, you know, we would meet downtown and there was this justice, you know, I'm not going to say his name, but justice for him. And it was like this guy died because of this fight but then they bring up all of his well he did this or he was in out of jail it's like no that's not what it is these guys because they came from and had money to get lawyers and stuff like that some of them are let off a lot different than if this were to happen with just a group of people of color in a fight and just somebody like that everybody would be arrested and done is there justice in the legal system does it exist and I, and I say this out of love, like honestly, yes, but I think if you're poor, low income, a person of color, I think that's far-fetched unless somehow you, you come up with this thing and they're like, oh, you know what, we're going to turn all this around. You know what, you are right. But most of the time, like some of the court-appointed attorneys, they only get, what, three, four minutes to look at a case? And then, you know, like, oh, I try to call you. It's like, no, nobody's called anybody. And I mean... And I, and I don't say that, like, for everybody, but there's a majority where it's like, no, if... Even if you don't know if that's the case for thousands of other people, which it is, by the way, but even if you didn't know that, you can speak from your own from your own place and say, this happened with me, and so I know that if these things align differently, then maybe justice would have been served, whatever the heck that even means in a different way. So my brother-in-law, we had these airsoft guns. That was my brother-in-law and our other brother-in-law and I was standing on the side of a church and had an airsoft gun. It was in my pocket and nobody could see it. Somebody pulled out and they called the cops saying that there was a guy on the corner waiting to shoot somebody coming out of a church. And so out of the back, I see cop like headlights and I look, I'm like, oh, there must have been a fight down the street. And then I see it get closer and I think about it and I take off running. I tell my brother-in-law, hey, the cops are coming. All of a sudden I look and there's a cop with his rifle. And then he goes, there he is, get down. So my brother-in-law is like 6'2 with red hair. Okay, I'm this cholo-looking guy, but I wasn't even dressed up like that that night. We were just out for a minute. And the way I was treated and the way that he was treated was completely different for the same thing. I had, I had a, a knee in my neck. I had my face in the gravel. And to him it was like, hey, are you okay? Are these cuffs too tight? Like, come on, let's get you out of the rain. But once I mentioned a relative who's in law enforcement, everything changed. And it was like, oh, because he's kind of higher up. 
but I mean, we did the exact same thing, just the way like we were treated, I was treated, and my brother will even tell you, like, no, you got treated like way worse, mm. and it was for the exact same thing. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's it sucks that it's like that sometimes, but and I, and I don't like it when it's well, you dress like a cholo. It's like no, that sometimes it's comfortable wearing a pair of dickies, mm-hmm. you know. But people see that and I'm like, nah, look at this guy. He's got tattoos. It's this and that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's automatic. Like, this guy is into something. Even though, I mean, I judge people all the time, too. It's a natural thing sometimes. Like, okay, this person, I might need to watch him. But sometimes it's not needed when it comes from law enforcement. Yeah, that there's a lot of assumptions and labels put on people right away. And then big decisions are made. Um, in an quickly. instant. Life-changing decisions in an instant. And I think it's interesting thinking about what you're saying. When we think about the justification of the war on drugs, right? That's what it's called. That's what all of this is called, um, is the war on drugs. But really what it sounds like you're saying is a war on poor people and people of color. And, And how I think we understand where we're at when you look into a prison. I mean, it's very interesting as a person who's not been to prison going into a prison particularly in the state that I live in, and seeing the amount of people of color who are incarcerated is shocking. It's shocking. Um, What does that mean for you to be a person of color and have had contact with the system from birth, essentially? So my biological parents, like we're Hispanic, Native. My adopted parents are white. And so I grew up in a, in a high school. I went to a high school with like 300 kids and probably 30 of us total, like not just Hispanics, but there's probably 30 that weren't white about. And that was it. I mean, so it never really, things that were said were more subtle than like, like not necessarily so like it was, wasn't like racist, but there's stuff that was said that's like, okay, whatever, man, like whatever. But I mean, now as an adult, it's a lot harsher today. When it comes to it, just because it's going on, and I think when you have the news that cops killed a person of color and this and that, I think that we as people of color take that to the heart. I also think, though, I put I obviously put myself there. Like, the first time I ever got arrested, I was 16, and we broke into a house. I broke the law, we broke in and, you know. Are there other things that you think are important, you know, if we have people listening who don't know much about what it's like to grow up in and around families who are in and out because of incarceration or are coming back to the community? Are there other things that you think would be important for those people or those listeners to know about? Some might only go through that one time and that's it. They might never have to go through something like that again, but there's repeat offenders, so sometimes it becomes a lifestyle that consumes a person. And, you know, there's people that rather be in prison than out there. Mm-hmm. And that sucks because then they, I don't want to say it's a selfish thing because for them that might be how they think they'll survive in general. But it's like it doesn't always have to be like that. And for the ones who, like, have family members in there and stuff like that, it's those letters hurt every letter writing or receiving those suck like it's you know it's prison promises you know it's jailhouse conversions it's 
it's tough but like i said there is a, there is hope you know and i say that not in a religious way just in general there's there's hope that you know tomorrow and i don't mean like tomorrow literally i mean like tomorrow's different you know for everybody even people in prison and tomorrow somebody might get it and be like you know what this is it you know back up from everything they do figure out what they got to do and move on through life and become successful after that but you can either stay that or you can just get back in the same mix and that's going to come in the system and it's hard to say but i don't fully when i hear people say oh i could only sell dope for a job i could only do this i'm like no i don't believe that i don't think that was your only way Mm -hmm. to make a dollar Mm -hmm. out there that's all they think sometimes you know that's that's how i can do it and so they get back in the system with that but yeah, there's hope out there. What's the message that you give or try to instill in the younger generations in your family? A lot of my family, like a lot of my younger niece and nephews, I mean, I'm the cool Uncle Junior. Like, I'm cool. Like, once I started rapping, I got like cool. <laughs> you got some cred. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but I mean, they like this version of me better you know they don't mind if I have a beer or something but like before I'd show up and just be wasted at six in the morning like hey you know my sister or something and you know they would see that and they'd be like okay whatever but they didn't like it and now they're like you know we like you like this we like you not all messed up like you not you know when I couldn't function they didn't like any of that but now I'm able to like do stuff and be around and I mean even with younger family members, some of them, like, they're, you know, one of their member, family members might not be there, so it's a single mother raising them, and, you know, I'm just there to support in a different way that's that's positive instead of just, like, yeah, go kick it in the street, do whatever, you know, smoking weed, smoking this and that, and now it's like, hey, handle your business, like, go get a job. You guys are still young. Be financially, like, secure on your own, like, I just turned 35, and so it's like I just started a career, basically. And I in, I came in late in the game. But, I mean, you could start out young and change everything. You don't have to go back to juvie because after juvie, it's jail and prison. And if some of them don't get that now, their next stop is prison, and that's a whole different game than the juvenile. I just try to stay on my path you know because the second i fall out of that and if i were to get back into drugs and the second they would see that they're gonna be like you know what there isn't any sort of hope it's all like he can't even make it so it's like i i have to stay on this and it's hard i mean it's hard sometimes but the outcome of where i am now is better than what it was five years ago so it sounds like being a positive influence, being a good role model, and being someone that they can look up to is important to you. Yeah. I I don't really talk about this a lot, but like I was running like a youth group kind of a thing on a Friday night. It was high school and middle school. But the reason it started, the reason that I started it was because of my younger family members and what they were going through. I was like, if these kids, I was 15 I was 12 when I started, like, weed and stuff like that, but 15 when it, like, harder drugs. And so I have younger siblings, or not siblings, I have younger family members that are, like, on the brink of, like, hey, we can go this way or we can go this way or we've already been there. And I'm, you know, I started this whole youth thing to, like, 
tell them like, hey, you guys can all turn around right now. It all got started because of family members that you want to see do do better and well in life, you know. And if you were to um, talk with a policymaker, a governor, whoever, about intergenerational incarceration and solutions um, to avoid people going back into the system throughout generations, what would some of those solutions be from your experience? They need more more places where teens can go that aren't just like, I mean, the Boys and Girls Club is good, but there are some that's just kind of like a hangout spot to go and kick it and then they leave and go do whatever. And I say that because I know that from people I know. Um, but, I mean, they really need somewhere where teens can go and actually feel safe. I mean, there needs to be more resources for teens, and they can't just leave them hanging. And it's like, where do they go when stuff at home? You know, because a lot of these teens today, you know, their moms aren't that old. You know, their moms were teen moms. And then their kids are teen moms, and then, you know, it's it just it's around in a circle. But, I mean... They need more places in general for teens to go. Like I said, some of them aren't as legit as wanting these teens to, like, really succeed. It's just kind of like they're there. Hey, we get paid. We're going to be cool with you guys. And that's it. So more actual community support, something more genuine, um, and maybe not a Band-Aid. And they need to be, like, taught, like, educate these kids. Because a lot of them dropped out young. A lot of them have no skill even to go get a job or like, okay, how do you do a resume? You know, it's like they need – these teens need love, man. Like, I mean, really. Do you think that when a parent or a family member is incarcerated, their children and other family members are incarcerated as well? Yeah. Yes. Um. I don't know how it was for, like, my sister. When our dad went to prison, she never really talked about it. Um, But I know, like, for me, I took it hard every time because I would get close to them, and then he'd be in prison. Then I'd try and get close to them, and he'd go to prison. But, I mean, he's even distant because of how much he's spent incarcerated, you know, and... I mean, I don't know what it's like for, like, a wife, you know, a spouse when that happens, you know. Um, But kids, kids are affected more than I think some of the parents might think. And, I mean, I'm sure it kills them when they're alone from their kids, but I think there's some that it's not, the kids will come secondary or third no matter what. Because if it was really about the kids, I think they'd change it. I really do. I think they'd fight for it more than anything. But... They don't. Yeah, you talking about it um, made me think about how similar the experiences are. So if you're writing a letter, you're also waiting for a letter back, similarly to the person who's in prison. Um, If you're waiting for a visit, they're waiting for a visit. If you're counting down the days, they're counting down the days. And so there is so much that's similar within that. And then when the person comes back, it's not them. It's not them. It is them, but they're different. I still have a bunch of letters from my dad from another sibling that was locked up for a long time, and I still have them. I mean, some of them you don't get rid of just because, you know, some of them, the way they write in prison, too, 
is sometimes it's really poetic, even though they're not trying to be. And just reading it, it's just like, wow, like that's powerful. I had, a, I had another relative that went to prison for a long time and that I wrote probably 200 letters, but I never sent one. And that that was hard. That was really hard. I just couldn't. It started out nice, and then it didn't get mean. It just got like, I'm just trying to explain something. But then every time it was just either way too much rambling, like pages of it. It couldn't ever just be simple. And then I just I just couldn't send it because I was like, I can't. They can't read this while they're there because that's going to suck. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be hard. I never got, I mean, like I said, I, I never went to prison or anything, but just I'd get letters in jail. I'd get visits in jail. I mean, that was cool. But I don't know what it was like to not get one for 10 years from someone. I think that's something important for some listeners who maybe have um, survived or come out of the system or, going, or are going in and out of the system that it's, it's challenging when family members or people that you love sort of drop off after time. And maybe that's right away or maybe that's a few years in or whatever or for a few months that there's this whole process happening for them. Um, like you were saying, writing so many letters and then I just I can't send them because I'm trying to consider where they are. I don't have the right words. I don't really know how to start this or end this. And I think it's hard um, and I can say this from working with people who've been incarcerated when they don't hear from someone for a long time. It's like they don't care. They're not going to be there. We're, you know, if it's a relationship, we're over. And it's a lot more complicated than that because the world is big and life sort of moves on. You know, there's jobs and relationships and you move and things happen, right? In five years or 10 years in prison, it's like the same thing every day. Your world is very, very small. You know, from both ends, it's it's hard. It's tough. Like Hannah said earlier, it's like we're both waiting on a letter. We're both looking at a release date. We're both, we're both kind of in this just from different sides. And I think phone calls from prison should be free. It's you might not have the money, or you have to have a certain card, or you have to send money. You have to okay, I gotta put like two dollars on there now for another you know minute to whatever. But it's like that can keep somebody from communication, and that's not. I don't think that's right. I mean, obviously, I'm not. I don't know the insides, like you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a phone call like that shouldn't be charged or charged so much. I mean, that breaks communication. And that probably makes it harder for a lot of people that can't necessarily afford it. And they really just want that I love you phone call. Tony, what does family mean to you? And how has that changed over time? I think that family, I've always kept that like open big because I have like my foster family, I have my adoptive family, I have my biological family, but then I have friends that are like family. I mean, you love your family, you love your families, you love your friends. Family isn't just like blood. And I don't say that like, you know, but like really it's. Is it something that's changed over time? I think because of my travels, you know, it's been a lot of friends have been more like family. Um, I mean, you have the family that cares, but then you have friends that care even more. You know, you have friends that'll uh, 
got friends that'll drive an hour to pick you up so you detox. And you have family that'll just keep feeding you dope. You know, what's family? You know. But it's love. I love all my family. I love my friends like family. You you don't know when someone's um, like change point or moment might be, right? It might be, you mentioned earlier, the first time someone gets arrested or the first time someone messes up, like that could be it. And they, they're going to learn from that experience enough to not want to do it again. And for other folks, it might be five times, four times, 10 times, um, and they still can change. And so you just don't know when that moment might be for someone. And so it's, it's hanging on even when it's hard. It definitely sucks as a kid. I mean, I'm not a kid, but as even being a kid, having parents or family members in and out of jail like that, but just keep caring for those people. You know, even the, everyone needs love, right? But, like, the people locked up, they they have it different. Obviously, you don't do everything right to end up in prison. But, I mean, there's redemption in everything. You still got to love those people, you know? You still got to... They screw up, they screw up, so I love them. I mean, it sucks because I have an on and off thing with a person, and it's it's hard because it's it's been like this a long time. And so I have to keep my heart safe and not hurt again by the person. But at the same time, it's like I have to still keep loving them because and, and it doesn't matter that we're related. It's just in general, like, that person might just be holding on because you're the only one who might believe in that person. Uh, even if you're mad at that person for going in and out, breaking that promise for, you know, it's like, you know what? Like we all, everybody, whether both sides, you know, it's, it's a fight, but no, just keep loving that person. After everything you've been through and you continue to strive for what keeps you hopeful just that I don't always have to be like how I was. If I would have just stayed going this way, how different things would have been. I'm grateful today that I'm not like how it was because everything that led up, so I got in an accident and I almost died like five years ago on my birthday. And so everything that led up to there was just constant like struggle, constant like the in and out of jail, constant drug addiction, constant, it was fighting that whole time trying to just be like okay so I get in this accident I come out of it I'm like okay I have this second chance what am I going to do with it I could just go back to doing whatever I wanted but it's like it scared me so much that I didn't want to and so you know I made this change and started doing everything different and I mean who I am today is different than who I was five years ago but I'm still me I just said, you know what, I'm not going to do dope. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to get into that. And it's hard not to. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you want to touch on, especially if your family is listening? Um, just know I love you guys. Um, you guys know there's hope. You know, uh, doesn't matter your age. All right. Well, I think that's it. Thank you so much for being on our show. I'm so excited that you got to be here today, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of that. I know it's not easy stuff to think about or remember or share, but I really appreciate your openness today, so thank you. 